and she'll be talking about Ruth First's Red Suitcase, In and Out of the Strong Room of Memory. And this is a chapter of Carly's new book, which is called Written Under the Skin, Blood and Intergenerational Memory in South Africa. And I think Carly has a few copies for sale after the seminar, um, if anyone's interested. So we'll have our usual timing where we'll, we'll have the talk, which will be about 50 minutes, an hour, and then we'll have 40 to 30 minutes for questions, and then we have some, some drinks and some tea and coffee and wine at the back so we can keep talking informally as well. Thank you very much. I didn't want to be the first one of the year, uh, but that's how it turned out. So my books come along to accompany me, so I don't have to do it alone. Um, so I want to start, thank you very much for asking me, uh, even though you bullied me to be the first. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I want to start with this very well-known photograph uh, of South African activist Ruth First during her period of imprisonment, which she recorded in perhaps the most famous prison ethnography from South Africa, 117 days. First was born in 1925, murdered in 1982. She was a South African-born activist and revolutionary, a journalist, an academic, but she was also a gifted and influential editor and worked for some time as a university librarian. Her pursuit of meaningful labor and the difficult choices she had to make to earn a living as well as to do meaningful work and activist labor resonate powerfully for those of us who face similar challenges. In this first seminar of the year, it seems worth reflecting on the relationship between our lives, our activism, and our scholarly work, and how our desks and our computer terminals are connected to worlds beyond the clean and beautiful seminar room. I want to pay attention in this little talk, like a cataloger, to the contents of Ruth First's red suitcase. What it contained as she entered prison, and what it contained as she exited 117 days later. I became very interested in this suitcase and what its contents can reveal about how we read, how we catalog, and how we conceptualize what is an archive, but also how our private lives and the contents of our bags and suitcases are implicated in our activism. For those of you less familiar with Ruth, Ruth First, she died a violent and bloody death at the hands of the South African security police in her university office uh, by opening a letter bomb addressed to her at her office at Eduardo Mondlane University in Maputo, Mozambique. Her murderous identities of common knowledge, they are Roger Jerry Raven, Johan Kutsia, Craig Williamson. Uh, after Craig Williamson made full confession, or what he presented as full confession, of First's murder, the Truth and Reconciliation granted him amnesty for this and for the many other crimes he committed and to which he admitted. He remains a free man. The murder weapon was a letter bomb, wired to explode when First opened it. The force of the explosion was such that her blood and body fragments were dispersed through the office she shared at the university. I didn't bring that photograph. Descriptions of the murder scene linger on the details of First's dismembered body in the space where she used to work, write, and read. This presentation files the deathly letter addressed to Ruth First alongside the other hostile texts that the apartheid state collected and archived about her and her colleagues' co-workers. My argument resists entering the hostile archive from which the letter bomb was sent and instead rehearses a re-entry into what Ruth first calls the strong room of her memory. In 117 days, she writes, I was packing my mind into a strong room. This strong room is, in the first place, the prison cell in which first was detained, and which she revisits in various forms and through different media. In the second place, the strong room is also the threshold that first wanted repeatedly to prove to herself that she had not crossed. Through her creation of a strong room of memory, she wanted to seal in and to seal off any crossings into the hostile archive from where her death sentence was issued. In an attempt at creating such a sealed counter-archive, first wrote her account of the incarceration by the apartheid government in 1964. It was published in 1965 as 117 days. It's a text that stands as a centerpiece of the histories of the activists connected to Ruth First. Living, in work, living and working in careful evasion of the official state paper trail, 
the written evidence of First's private life is a tiny archive. Although many entries are catalogued under her name in library catalogues, the scholarly and journalistic works that she produced and edited. 117 Days is extremely widely referenced and has been adapted and recreated numerous times on screen and in novels and is cited in all the histories of the period. The text constitutes a particular kind of archive, or to use First's own evocative term, a strong room, self-consciously sealed against the police surveillance archive. But contrary to the way that it's typically read as a prison ethnography, I suggest that the text is not a documentary account of her time in prison. It is a text that does much more and also much less than to document. It obfuscates and encodes, creating a screen and a strong room impermeable to the gaze of her interrogators. Alongside this reading of the text of 170 Days, I suggest that Ruth First's red suitcase has been misfiled. The cotton wool in the suitcase, in particular, has been misfiled as part of a bourgeois beauty regime, but instead it offers a revealing clue to the complexly bloody encryption of 117 Days. You may be surprised to know that this photograph was taken in Oxford. In that sense, the photograph is a kind of deep fake, but it's also a true fake. Prison writing has attracted a great deal of scholarly attention, in particular in South African contexts, where the prisoners who wrote the accounts of their prison time tended to be associated with oppositional political movements. Daniel Rue is the scholar in South Africa who's done the most work on the genre. Typically, these prison diaries have been read as modes of resistant testing. The documentary status of Ruth First's 117 Days was confirmed by a 1965 BBC film based on the account, and this is a still from the film, uh, in which First acted herself and which provided for a UK audience a key to understanding the events. The photo, this photograph, as I said, is from the BBC documentary, which was filmed uh, largely in Oxford. In the account published as 170 Days, we read of the many other hostile documents recording First's prison stay. Most crucial is the statement which Ruth First makes to the police, but never signs, thus not attaching her signature to it to authenticate it. Even without the incriminating signature, which would have proven and marked her cooperation in the making of the statement, first becomes obsessed with the dangers posed by this document and by how it might circulate. She writes uh, about her anxiety about the document being cyclo-styled in many dossiers. That's probably not a word familiar to you uh, with the technologies you use. Uh, but it's a manual form of reproduction. A journalist interested in the reproduction of texts through mechanical copying means, she imagines a nightmarish version of the statement multiplying and circulating widely in places that she cannot control. Another dangerous document in need of containment is a suicide note she writes, when she realizes that the ways in which her statement, which is a fake, it's not her statement, can be used against her has possibly compromised her. This suicide note is addressed to her husband and children. Her husband was Joe Slovo. Um, she writes it on the inside cover of a crossword puzzle book. Um, I mean, you can see how, it's a, how cinematic this is, the, the, the notion of encryption and of puzzles. She claims to tear the page out in her document. She claims that she tore the page, page out and flushed it down the toilet. But I'll talk later about how this suicide note surfaces again. A further hostile document is her official release form from prison, handed to first in duplicated form. So you can see this notion of something being handed to her in a duplicated form indicates that there are other duplicates in other folders. This release form confirmed that there were many other versions of her arrest and imprisonment filed in ledgers and folders held by her interrogators. When first was released from prison, she left behind the unsigned statement, but she was unable to retract or redact the statement, which was already filed in the police file. Her release form 
was also a compromise and compromising document, because the 19 days detention had as its expressed aim the extraction of information from those held under it. In other words, to be released was to raise suspicion that one had cooperated. So she would have preferred to have stayed in prison because that would prove that she hadn't spoken. If you see the complications that I'm pointing to there. Um, when first, after her release from prison, applied for a passport to allow her and her daughters to travel to the UK for a time, fully intending to go back, she was denied official permission and was instead issued with one document, an exit permit. Um, her departure from South Africa in March 1964 was to prove her final exit from the country to which she never returned. Documents related to Ruth First's prison stay alongside the counterfoils for the exit permit that was handed to her instead of a passport that would allow her to re-enter South Africa, must exist still in a number of state depositories. In the prison service archive, there are ledgers and folders with her name on it and into which her name and prison movements are documented. On her insistence, her complaints about her treatment were also recorded in these files. As I said, Paul, Ruth First and her circle avoided paper trails, and notes and records of meetings and agendas were kept to an absolute minimum um, to protect their identities and their plans. In a life lived in avoidance of the official archivist of the state, Ruth First left behind very little that is not part of the hostile archive. When she left prison and later exited South Africa, she was aware of leaving behind this tainted and hostile archive. In his testimony to the TRC, her murderer Craig Williamson, who I'm also not going to show you, weakly repeated that what he did was legal, official, sanctioned by the archives and documents of the government's secret murder squad. Ruth Buss started writing 117 days while she was living in the UK. The grey autumn and winter of 1964 was a time of challenging transition. Her friend Ronald Siegel, we read in account of her early days in London, persuaded her to write this narrative of her prison time as an expose of prison conditions in South Africa, uh, in that tradition of the prison ethnography that I spoke about earlier. The book is also an account of and testimony to her own role as what she describes as the master of the ambiguous and evasive reply. Um, and she prided herself on her ability to speak ambiguously and evasively. In the remembered cell, we see Ruth first checking and rechecking that she left nothing behind that could be used as part of the hostile archive. And in order to do this, she returns, I would say obsessively, to the cell in her memory and in her writing, scrutinizing it any taint or stain it could leave on her character. Tony Judd, in the title essay of his book, The Memory Chalet, described the method he developed for organizing his memories after he was affected by a disabling disease which rapidly led to his death. Losing his ability to move meant the loss of what he calls the yellow pad and the pencil. Um, I think many of you still take notes pen and pad, but I see increasingly people taking notes on, uh, on computers and laptops. But for Ruth First and for Tony Judd, it's the pad and the pencil are crucial tools. Uh, Tony Judd writes uh, about, um, he returns in memory to a chalet he used to visit frequently as a child. And he writes, each night for days, weeks, months, and now well over a year, I've returned to that chalet. I've passed through its familiar short corridors with their worn steps and settled into one of two or perhaps three armchairs, conveniently unoccupied by others, as chairs in one's memory tend to be. And then I've conjured up, sorted out and ordered a story or an argument that I plan to use in something I shall write the following day. So trapped in his body, he attaches memories to objects in the room and goes round and round the room, attaching ideas to the room 
hoping that the next day he can somehow convey this to his scribe. In Tony Judd's memory chalet, the atmosphere is one of a cozy return to a beloved chair that one sat in as a child. This is starkly opposite to the way first revisits the prison room in her memory. But in other ways, this architectural metaphor is suggestive of a space that is revisited repeatedly as a way of organizing memory, editing and redacting <coughs> the past, and fearfully imagining what one has overlooked or not remembered. Obfuscation and subterfuge are dominant themes in the literature on the group of which Ruth Burst and Joe Slogo were members in the 1960s, as countless references and incidents in the biographies of the group um, document. Their daily lives were characterized by deliberate secrecy and opacity to evade the inevitable surveillance and to minimize risk of exposure. Such a group will not leave a written archive, and typical of the reference sections in the biographies are lists of oral sources and interviews conducted with those who remember and lived through the events. And Julia will be teaching you, we're doing the MSc course about orality and about these techniques next Monday. In her family autobiography, Every Secret Thing, Ruth Burst's daughter, Gillian Slovo, comments explicitly on the paucity of a written archive of her parents' life, explaining why she had to rely on interviews, which in turn reunite and continually reconstitute the group of people about whom we re read, although they, you could also imagine that they're all dying uh, or have died. Ruth first biographers do not enter the apartheid archive, relying instead on the oral and written sources produced by and circulated in the anti-apartheid movement. And 117 days form the key text, as I said, in this archive. It's often read as the primary documentary source of information. In piecing together and re-editing these pasts, biographers of the circle have had to recreate and sometimes invent an archive. The threshold between documented fact and remembered invention runs as a submerged theme through 170 days, which is an extended reflection on the nature of remembering without written notes. In a revealing description of Ruth Burst's working method as a journalist, she's described literally pinning sentences together with sewing pins. Um, as if building up a text through splicing other texts using the domestic machinery of sewing and mending. First, en first energy and skill as an editor is often remarked upon, as is her industriousness. We know that she was a noisy worker. Her writing accompanied by the seemingly ceaseless clutter of the Hermes typewriter that now is in her daughter's office. In her account of her time in prison, denied not only a typewriter, but even a pencil, first makes a very surprising observation, especially for someone whose personal archive has turned out to be largely an oral one. She writes, my memory is very poor. I always need a pencil and sources to construct my writing. This is a challenging comment to integrate in one's reading of the text, which we know was reconstructed from memory, without a pencil at hand to make notes. If the author acknowledges her poor memory, what we are holding in our hands cannot be read in a complicated way, uncomplicated way, as a documentary record. Um, first work as a journalist and editor forms the mainstay of account of the meaning of her life. More opaque for her political work is the time she spent training to be and working as a librarian. At the time of her arrest, first was prevented by a banning order from working as a journalist. For someone whose political work consisted of writing and trying to read documents that were either banned or restricted, there's a certain irony in training to be a librarian. In the account of her arrest, we read that first was sorting atlases, making a list of what was needed in the library. Barbara Harlow glosses the scene in her account of the arrest, interpreting the choosing of atlases as an act of revolutionary preparation. Once Harlow raises the possibility of the librarian, someone who smuggles knowledge out of the official archives, the potentially explosive meanings of this activity proliferate. The revolutionary who is pretending to be a librarian, and indeed working as a librarian, learns what the official archive contains in, better, in order better to evade it. This approach is echoed in First's repeated insistence that in prison, she would watch to see what they knew before she planned how to evade their questions. Um, I will leave out a bit about Barbara Harlow, although you must read her work. Um, let me see. 
One of the most frequently repeated anecdotes around First's arrest and imprisonment is the packing of her suitcase Sorry, wait. <laughs> uh, under the gaze of the police. The red suitcase has a literature attached to it, with many interpreters pointing out the gendered, classed, and racialized contents of Ruth First's prison luggage. In the introduction to 117 Days, written by her daughter, we find references to a beloved and remembered mother's elegance, itemized through her perfume and her underwear. The contents of the suitcase are carefully catalogued and repacked again from memory in 117 days. Uh, it contains the comforts one might need in prison, but it also uh, is to be understood as an instance of a genre of knowledge shared by people who thought that they were going to be arrested and had the suitcases ready. In the documentary film version made for the BBC, uh, which is in black and white, the suitcase remains grey, but I'm convinced it's the same suitcase that's acting itself. In a world apart, wardrobe supplied Barbara Harlow, uh, Barbara Hershey, uh, with a thinly, who plays a thinly disguised Ruth first, with a powder blue suitcase instead of a red one. Uh, and here it's as if the suitcase itself has become encrypted in disguise. There's one item in particular in the suitcase that no one has commented on in the extensive writing, the large amount of cotton wool. David Skullquake, in a censorious discussion of what he described as first bourgeois identity, glosses the suitcase as containing <coughs> unlikely but characteristic items such as underwear, makeup, eyebrow tweezers, and a mirror. He judges first harshly, comparing her relative comfort to the conditions suffered by other women prisoners, not protected by their middle-class white identity. But I want to lift out the cotton wool, and I do this to mark how crucial it is where the cotton wool is archived and how it is classified. For most readers, cotton wool would be catalogued under makeup and cosmetics and simply ignored. But I'm going to have a darker interpretation of the cotton wool. First described in 117 days how the policeman disgorges the cotton wool. He pounced on it and sprawled it on the counter like the innards of an hygienic caterpillar. The account of the invasive and hostile unpacking of the intimate contents is followed immediately in the text by a series of paranoid questions. What did they know? Had someone talked? Would their questions give me a clue? The uncoiling of the cotton wool, as if it were a live creature being cut open, seems to conjure up fear of other secrets being opened up. In a later scene in the narrative, a fellow inmate who is, who is there for one night only and who turns out to be Anne-Marie Walton, um, who describes this moment in her autobiography, Long Way Home. She remembers asking if anyone had cotton wool because she knew she was going to have her period that night. For the reader who knows how to read cotton wool um, and menstruation, this is the function of the hygienic caterpillar of cotton wool. During a prison stay of 90 days, a woman of first age would expect to menstruate three times. Apart from the references to someone else being unprepared and needing to have some cotton wool, First never mentions the cotton wool again, nor, um, the, nor makes mention of the uses of the cotton wool to absorb menstrual blood. Yet the language of barriers and prevention, leaks and seepages, saturate the text. First's insistence on her dignity and her personal care is a central part of the narrative and is to be understood as she intended it to be, as a form of resistance to the dehumanizing effects of solitary confinement. To write about menstruation is not part of First's project or her program. In the 1970s, contemporary to Ruth First, menstrual activists uh, would encourage women to speak out about the secret world of menstruation and the dignities suffered by women deprived of sanitary products while menstruating in prison has recently become a rather prominent cause. One might also wish to contrast the hygienic caterpillar uh, to the harrowing descriptions of torture found uh, in uh, Winnie Marikizela Mandela's 491 days, prisoner 132369, uh, where she describes her own excessive menstrual bleeding in prison. Um, uh, there are many references to menstruation in the TRC record. And a history of menstruation and its racialized archives in South Africa would be a really useful and important project, but it's not what I did here. Um, menstruation has a particular, uh, peculiar place in narratives of secrecy. 
The most obvious connection is the well-documented histories of menstruation as itself a secret. In histories of menstruation in literature, it's Anne Frank's name that appears on every list. Living in a hideout, Anne Frank's daybook mentions with breathless excitement the anticipation of her first menses. While the changes in her body seem to, to Anne Frank a reminder and a promise of her life outside as an adult, there is to the reader, as there must have been to the adult women sharing the hideout, the reality of concealing any material to do with menstruation while living in secret and confined spaces. In scholarly work on Anne Frank's diary, discussions typically revolve around her father's desire to censor matters to do with sexuality when he edited the diary. Hence, the theme of embodied secrecy is brought to the level of domestic and familial, rather than in relation to the larger themes of secrecy and subject. Um, a related incident of menstrual flow and secrecy, also from a resist, res, resistance literary tradition, comes from Elsa Morante's uh, history, a novel, in which Mariolina, a young Italian woman, at gunpoint, while enemy soldiers demand to know the whereabouts of her lover and his comrades, uh, feels the first signs of the onset of menstruation. And while she feels the strip uh, of blood uh, going down her leg, she finds herself telling them everything. Um, so, so very often in literature, one has this moment of onset of menstruation with letting out a secret. When first is interviewed by her jailers, she prides herself on her ability to lock the strong room's memory. One of the ways in which her interrogators seek to break down the strong room is to deprive her of reading <coughs> and writing. The suitcase, as it's packed in Firth's home, uh, contains at least one novel, a pencil, although we don't read that it contains writing paper. It almost certainly did. Given her working methods, her poor memory, her work as an investigative journalist, her use of interviews as the basis of her journalism, her editorial work in which she responded to and shaped the work of others, it's not clear what she would have written in the prison cell other than letters and a kind of prison ethnography. The restriction of access to writing and reading materials is a mainstay of that period in solitary confinement. It's repeatedly justified by the police as part of a program to make prisoners uncomfortable and to, get, to give them time to think about the interrogator's question. Yet first, first finds and remembers many instances of reading material in her cell, as well as in the two different prisons that are her home for the duration of the 117 days. To readers of a literary bent, 117 days has much to offer. The text contains references to other literary works, Chess, the Charterhouse of Palmer. The narrative breaks off to include in italics the narratives of others, creating a collective voice. Um, she catalogues and inventories any references she finds to writing on and in prison, on the tiniest things, like writing on, a, on the side of a pencil, as well as what she glimpses through a window. Um, First finds an archive of the resistance movement also in the prison ledgers that document the names of the other jail inhabitants, and she likens this to a family reunion. The text includes the book into which her complaints about her treatment are entered and the official visitor book. All of these entries leave a trail that can potentially be used against Ruth Bird. Many readers have commented on the scraps of paper and newsprint that she finds or, or sees through the window, and Every single account mentions the chewing gum wrapper that her daughters gave her and which she reads over and over. Undiscussed in any of the commentaries is the written archive of Afrikaans' name tags that she finds when she walks through the prison courtyard and comes across laundries hung on a washing line strung across the courtyard. Each item was marked with a number and an Afrikaans name. She writes, I wandered between the rows of dresses, shirts, vests, blouses, shorts, jeans, marked. Van der Marwe, Kemp, Prinsloer, Erasmus, Van Rijk, Beutenkamp, Rousseau, Fulgieter, Van Seyl, Kutsier, Duplessis. The archive of white goods, underpants and sheets, is described in a hauntingly evocative passage. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, this reading of the names on the washing line is glossed by first not only for the names that it includes and the kind of um, archive that is behind these name tags, but she develops from it a short historical analysis about the laundry that's being done in the prison. You know, she just she just runs with this sh sh uh, small archive of underwear that she finds um, and uh, you know, writes a sort of journalistic piece that's also part of 117 days. 
Uh, first writes in the most famous line from 170 Days, in prison you only see the moves of the enemy. This can be reinterpreted through the lens of the hostile archive I theorized earlier. When first makes her statement, she sees her words lose the meaning she intended them to have and become part of the hostile archive bent on her destruction. After making the statement, which she first thinks of quite self-congratulatory, was a non-statement, she's asked to return the next day to sign and authenticate the statement. It's this evidence, the signature on the statement, which will not prove her agency and control of the situation as she thought, but will instead be evidence of the fact that the words have been entered in the official hostile archive. This threatened signature is what leads to the crisis, a crisis which is not entirely legible. It's quite difficult to work out what's going on in the text. Gillian Slovo, in her book, Every Secret Thing, uh, her, her Family History, writes of reading sentences in uh, 117 days over and over, trying to make sense. And Slovo writes, she thought her friends would judge her, and they, some did. If Ruth had not written her book, no one would have known that she'd said anything, however trivial. Yet once the book was published, instead of applauding her courage, some of her closest comrades judged her for her weakness. She must have known before the book came out that this was bound to happen, and yet she let it ride. She was a brave woman, my mother. She began imagining the rumours that must be circulated. This passage makes apparent a seepage between bravery and cowardice. Bravery framed, in fact, as the ability to withstand accusations of weakness. In this version, then, the suicide becomes proof of bravery, an attempt at redacting an act of perceived cowardice through overwriting it with a brave act. In First's own account, remembered, written in an attempt to reseal the strong room, the meaning of her suicide attempt is rather more opaque. Deciding to commit suicide, she writes, there was only one way out. But the logic of that statement remains unclear. Does she mean there was only one way out of signing the form? Uh, or that the only way to exit prison is to exit as a corpse, because that would prove that she hadn't uh, compromised her comrades. Uh, first writes of needing to send a sign to the outside world, and the sign she uses to encrypt her message is her own suicide. But the planned suicide, which is a way of inauthenticating the document, of drawing attention to the absence of her signature, um, Fails in ways I'll explain now. She encrypts the deed in another way by writing the suicide note, addressed in the form of an apology, uh, using, she writes, an indelible pencil with the words property of the South African administration on it. Uh, and she writes it into a crossword book. The tools used to write the note admitting that her words are constrained by her jailers, but also that she's encrypted a message, a message that is not what it seems. The suicide note is intended as a cancellation of the statement, yet the sleeping tablets that she asks the doctor for turn out to be fake. And so her attempted suicide doesn't succeed because even the tablets are fake. Um, in First's own version, she rips the suicide note from the book and flushes it down the toilet. The note seems now to become evidence of cowardice rather than bravery because she's not succeeded. Here again, the meanings double back on themselves. The point to which the cowardice attaches itself is not clear. Um, you've told us nothing, the interrogator in the documentary film version shouts in a, uh, in a very bad uh, Afrikaans accent. Uh, I'll come back to the accent. Um, when first leaves prison, she doesn't bring the suicide note with her. She destroys it as another piece of potentially incriminating evidence against her. Nor does she bring the text of what will become 117 days in her red suitcase. She walks out with one document only, the carbon copy of her release form, the original. So having a carbon copy also makes clear that the original is somewhere else. The original is in the file. Um, here it will join the incomplete, unauthenticated, but darkly dangerous statement. The carbon copy is not a copy of the statement that first regrets having made never sees again, yet often imagines, but it's a reminder of the incriminating unsigned document. When first left prison, she spent some time recovering at her home in Johannesburg, and during this time applied for the passport I mentioned before. The South African authorities did not grant her the passport, uh, but instead the exit papers only, 
closing her identity files, as it were. The exit from prison and the exit from South Africa are a source of anxiety. The very motivation for the 90 days detention was to extract information from prisoners. To have left prison, first feared, meant that in the gossip and rumours circulating, the implication would be that she had complied and cooperated. She writes in her account that she would much have preferred to have remained in prison, um, as this would have proven her non-collaboration. The memory strong room has this layer then of a fantasy of return, of wishing to be back in the prison cell, uh, rather to be there and think, therefore to be free of the gossip. The text contains a number of passages that record this desire to double back and to redact a document. Um, they references to plots and to secrets that multiply. During her remembered account of the interrogation session, she notes with some pride the sheet full of evasive answers she provides, very sarcastic uh, answers she gives. During the course of this scene, however, the ground shifts, as first recalled being told that there already had been a leak from elsewhere. The existent leak exposes her, and it makes it unclear whether she herself had leaked something by mistake. Um, leaving South Africa with her two young daughters, the eldest was traveling by boat with friends, first arrived in London, unsure how she was to make a living or what kind of meaningful work she would find. It's in the gray of a London autumn that she begins to write 117 days. It's best read then as an account to overwrite the statement and to counter the suspicions that were attached to her. The paranoid language about the need for tidiness and careful vigilance is striking. Yet this self-supervision is not an act that takes place at the time of imprisonment, it's written from London in order to document and archive her own version, to put her signature to what she hopes will become the definitive statement, which will seal the strong room once again. Soon after completing the writing of 117 Days, first was invited by the BBC to collaborate on the documentary for which she wrote the script, as well as making a radio programme and a radio play. Uh, I've managed to see this uh, rare film, 90 Days, in the BBC archive, um, and it was made by the recently deceased Jack Gold with First's collaboration. It's an extraordinary parallel text in which First recreates and, and um, reenacts her own imprisonment. The documentary film's authenticating palette of greys speaks also evocatively of the isolation of her new life in London. There's not much written on the making of the film, but from the few anecdotal sources and the account in Barbara Harlow's book, it's evident the film was made mostly in Oxford and some of it filmed in London, thinly and unconvincingly disguised as South Africa. The film is presented as a documentary, but it's better viewed as one in a series of revisitings and reenactments of the events narrated in 117 days. The film is experimental in form and unsettling in its stylishly stilted acting. In the film version, the title is changed to 90 days for the viewers for whom the phrase would be more easily understood as referring to the South African detention laws. Yet the change of name is resonant for the text, which thematizes uh, nom de guerre and the subterfuge involved. So <coughs> even the text is a fake. Even the name is a sort of disguise of the original. The final scene of the documentary, documentary shows Ruth first walking out of prison, her suitcase, quite possibly acted by the suitcase itself, in her hand. As her footsteps echo down the reenacted prison, prison passage, we hear the voice of the BBC, the BBC voice of the male narrator glossing the scene. She left prison and South Africa. In the conflation of the two scenes of exit, as if she's walking out of South Africa, um, the viewer is meant to understand that Ruth first left South Africa because there was no other option. The film's narrated events end with her walking out of prison, Yet this is also where the written narrative begins, um, as the author of the document starts writing the account after leaving prison and after leaving South Africa. The red suitcase is the suitcase that contains, as well as represents, the remembered events. Um, the version we see, like the suitcase itself, is and is not accurate. The red color is bleached out on the black and white screen as if First's own memories are themselves being deleted while she's trying to record them. The film goes over the same events, but as reenactment. And there's a fascinating literature on historical reenactments on film. If any of you are interested, I can give you a bibliography. 
the practical reasons for the deviation. First's exit visa meant she couldn't return to South Africa. The film was made on a very small budget. It was made in the genre of the didactic news documentary film, uh, particularly the kind of BBC documentary played at the time. And first probably wanted to protect her children's privacy. But the reenactment's differences from the text on which it's based are more than practical. They, in fact, reveal the urge to reenactment as redaction already present in the original text. In the act of writing the text, first revisits the scene of the prison cell in which she was held, sealing the strong room and attempting not to reveal any information. Um, it was the moment when suspicion settled on her, and in her book and in the film, she re-inhabits the prison to go over again her attempts at revealing nothing, playing out and re-enacting that she had told nothing. Overlaid with the leaving of the prison and the country is the fact that the film is made and the book published from London, removed from the engaged activist work in South Africa. Revisiting the memory prison is painful and traumatic, but is also comforting. Um, and the community of fellow comrades to which she was connected by the shared, if not communal, imprisonment. Remembering the prison cell and reconstituting it as if she re-inhabits that remembered place then. In 90 Days, the film, the reenactment is a fake, but I think it's self-consciously so. The film depicts the effects of solitary confinement in a cool cinematic style, reminiscent of the European avant-garde cinema that first knew well and loved. I don't mean to suggest that the film is artful and therefore not truthful. Instead, what I mean is that the fake counterfeit South Africa is precisely to be understood as that. In a staged prison in Oxford, the real Ruth First is visited by fake children, revealing, revealing to us the estrangement brought not only by solitary confinement, but by life in exile. It's worth going over the ways in which Gold's extraordinary film can be viewed as a document of forgery and an account of, success, of successfully resisting a leak. The children who act First's children are members of a counterfeit and uncredited family, and the house in which the red or grey suitcase is packed is clearly a little English suburban house. You can see the birdhouse at the back, you know, it's so clearly an English house, an English terrace house. In the language available to cinema, the documentary film picks up and reinterprets the book's paranoia. The book brings to the surface themes of surveillance and self-surveillance through the narration, and it's, uh, the film does this in extraordinary visual language. We hear First's voice make this theme explicit. I try to make time pass with the activities of others, but the figures I see could be on celluloid. They are not part of my world. That's not a line from the uh, book, but it's a line from the film. The black and white documentary, uh, the black and white documentary images from the South African Resistance Archive replace the italicized twinning narrative included in 170 days, creating both proximity and distance for first, who is reenacting her imprisonment far away in London. In a further complication of the reenacted archive, it's worth noting that these images circulated outside South Africa in ways very different from the censored news environment inside the country. The accented speech in the film is striking, providing us with yet another instance of distancing and encoding, and of how inauthenticity and forgery are used to make a truthful and accurate testimony. Um, the film opens with Ruth first in a library in North London, at Camden Library, uh, which is used as a counterfeit uh, Cullen Library at Bitsy University. She stands in front of a shelf of books uh, on political resistance, and she's shown dressed in the kind of clothing that we, that is iconic of her style, uh, simple Danish jewellery, very smart suits. Uh. She's holding in front of her a black folder into which she seems to be entering data, as if the accuracy of the film is proven by the her careful note-taking from documentary sources. Then the camera follows her as she descends the stairs in a mid-century modernist building of the kind we know first admired. She doesn't make eye contact with the viewer of the film, as if we are spying on her, as if we are watching her who knows we're spying on her, but who pretends not to know. Then she's met by two men speaking in what is meant to be of the Kant's accented English. The poor acting and unconvincing accents of all at first interrogators must be understood in the tradition of the stock Africana villain in cinema traditions, a 
perennial favorite still. Yet these counterfeit accents are significant in another way and can be understood in relation to the stylized and wooden acting by white people who were in fact part of the resistance movement, but who acted characters with whom they didn't share a vision of the world. An excellent example, uh, for those of you who've seen Comeback Africa, is um, Myrtle Berman, who was in fact a friend of Ruth First, who acts an unspeakable madam in Lionel, Lionel Rogerson's uh, Comeback Africa, uh, and puts on a, uh, an Afrikaans accent. In scenes that are hard to decode without the knowledge that all actors taking part in such a project would by definition be sympathetic to the aims of the film, one sees the protagonist, Zakaria, in conversation with a gratingly racist white madam and her passive husband. The woodenness of uh, Myrtle Berman's acting is an encrypted defense, since the poor acting is more than an act. It's a counterfeit, and it's meant to be understood. <coughs> Only progressive white South Africans would trust it to take part in Rogerson's project that was to become Comeback Africa. Rogerson writes in a section called Casting White. Uh, in his wonderful book on the film. Um, uh, and these same constraints uh, that we see in Rogerson's documentary project, I think are also uh, evident uh, in 90 Days. The accented speech of the interrogators and the guards is meant to invoke and record a particular South African reality. And this is the world that's being exposed by the writing of the book and the making of the film. Yet at the same time, the counterfeit Afrikaner accents remind the viewer at least the viewer who's been able to categorize the accents accurately, that this account is being compiled from the other side. They are not Afrikaners. They are not policemen. They are progressive uh, collaborators uh, of Gold and of Ruth First. First is free and out of prison in a London where South Africa is accessible to her only through black and white newsprint and the reenactment of a counterfeit South Africa. This same outside conflates painfully with her exit from South Africa and the loss and isolation that brought. The counterfeit Afrikaners reenact the scene at her interrogators, but they also on the outside. Barbara Harlow writes in Bard that 19 years after her release from the women's cells in March, oh, sorry, I skipped. The actors are near the security, have I read that? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, but also from the outside. The actors are neither security branch policemen, nor are they representatives sent from there. When first is shown being arrested and driven away from her workplace, I've tried so hard to see what street that is. I think it's Long Wall, uh, because there's a, a wall uh, that we see, a very un-South African wall. Instead of the car driving through Johannesburg, we see English Street and then countryside through the window of the moving car. Dillian Slovo writes in the acknowledgments at the end of her book, Every Secret Thing. Although my parents' history was enacted, not written down, and the raw material of their past were often destroyed, the truth of what happened was lodged in the memories of their friends and their comrades. The term enacted draws the reader's attention. It's an unusual word. Slovo is making a point about the absence of a written record, but we also see here the extra meaning of a life edited against hostile surveillance, a life that had at all times to be visible as a legal counterfeit of itself. There exists a set of images of the moment Ruth first left South Africa and arrived in London to be united again with her husband, Joe Slovo. Looking at these images, so often invoked in accounts of first's departure, one's eye becomes unusually attuned to what might be an act and what the photographs have been edited to conceal. The child, Gillian, her adult self recalls, is holding a Tintin book as she climbs the stairs. And here you can see, here's the picture, and she's not holding a Tintin book. Um, the child, Gillian, her adult self recalls, is shown carrying a Tintin book as she climbs the stairs into the plane. On the photograph, the book is not visible. It's clearly seen, however, on a picture taken after arrival. Here we see her clutching her Tintin book, Tintin and the Prisoners of the Sun. The book is held upside down as its owner looks up into her mother's face. First herself does not return the gaze, and in fact what is most striking in this family portrait is the fact that both Joe Slovo and Gillian are looking at Ruth First, whose arm is protectively around her younger daughter. The eye settles on the parallel positions of the arm, Gillian's unfolding her upside-down book, while her mother unfolds her sister, and the meanings of a family under siege proliferate. 
I mean, I didn't even talk about the fact that she's reading a book called The Prisoners of the Sun. Um, above their heads, we read the sign, no entry. The photograph may well have been taken in the BBC studios, but I haven't been able to uh, verify that. On the cover of my book of 117 days is a photograph of Ruth Hurst, a very awkward image that shows her face held behind two, between two hands that look, because of the angle of the camera, far too large to be her own. She didn't have fat fingers. Those fingers look, they do not look like her own hands. They are. Her face is tilted slightly downwards. Her lips are a tight line and her hands press her face on both sides as if what is inside the head needs to be constrained. The last words in 117 days refers to the fact that her release from prison felt like it was not the end and that they were not done with her. Barbara Harlow writes in Bar that 19 years after her release from the women's cells in Marshall Square, the Pretoria government sentenced Ruth first to death. In Gillian Slovo's Every Secret Thing, she includes a description of a letter and through it some imagined conversations between her parents. <coughs> when she spoke to Joe Slovo on the phone, writes Gillian, she must have told him something of the way she felt. She must have told him, as she wrote eventually from England, to a nameless friend inside the country. She quotes from her mother's letter to a nameless friend. I found myself very nervous when I came out about intruders and hearing walls. My spell in jail brought all kinds of things closer to the skin and some popped out. This sentence evokes the bodily metaphor of blood and the threshold of skin that contains it and also reinforces the dangers inherent in the moment the skin ruptures and meanings leak out. It's a passage from the mother's correspondence written from outside the country on her typewriter with a copy left behind in her own folders but unclear to who it was written. Uh, the address of the letter is illegible, concealed. The words in the letter provide the daughter with an imagined script for a conversation between her parents. Uh, First's body is described as having lost the ability to read with any certainty itself as well as its environment. The voice overhearing her has someone intruded into the home to spy on her. This disorientation is described as something that has come close to the skin, lurking just under the skin and ready to pop. To pursue this explosive metaphor in terms of first's death is too grisly, although Gillian Slovo comes close to it when she writes. The risks my parents took had meant that we were always on the lookout for that terrible event which would break through the fragile skin of everyday life. Instead, one can read this metaphor as one that describes the ethical reading, editing, mentoring and archiving practices um, whose protocols include going over, going over the lines again, retesting and re-editing the events and the documents that we think we already know, like this picture was taken in prison, which I think everyone believes. Thank you. <laughs>